This episode is brought to you by the Hammerhead Karu 2 Cycling Computer, where for a limited time, you can get up to $170 off when you trade in your current cycling computer and buy a Karu 2. Keep listening to find out how. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, and science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Cyrus Monk, who is a professional cyclist and cycling coach, Dr. Jason Boynton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach, and then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. In this episode, we have a special guest, which I'm just going to hand it straight over to Jason to introduce him. Today, we have with us on the Cycling Performance Club podcast, Dr. Paolo Menespa, who is currently the Chief Science Officer for the Australian Institute of Sport. And he has had an amazing career in the realm of cycling performance. I think that might be an understatement. But we've mentioned you, Paolo, on the podcast. I've probably lost count at this point. So it's really good to have you on. And it's a good continuation, actually, from our last guest that we had. For the people that haven't listened to the podcast before, Paolo was my PhD co-supervisor. And we've known each other six, seven years now. Yeah, met you through Facebook originally and found you through, I think, some papers and your blog that was on the science of sport that was back in the day. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for having me. I actually forgot how we met and all of that. And, um, but yeah, long time. Yeah. A long time. Um, so over the years that we've known each other, we've had a lot of discussions like on the train, going to ECU or here or over the phone or wherever. And over the years during these discussions, there's been many times where I've gotten to the end of them and said, gosh, I wish I would have recorded that because it would have been really good content for a YouTube video or a podcast or something like that. So today we're doing it and I'm very, very happy to have you on the show and don't really know where the conversation is going to go. But on the podcast, we talk about specialists and people who are generalists. And a lot of times we look at the coach as kind of the stereotypical generalist, but knowing you, knowing what I know about you and how, what your roles have been in the cycling performance role, I would have to say that you are a, what I would consider a master generalist. So I think that's what the um, conversation will be today. And we have to like talk a little bit about your background. Professionally started out at Mapier. I pronounce that right. I'm always horrible. At it. Well, the way the way I say it would be Mape, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I yep. guess it's just the yeah, yeah. And then you did uh, a sports scientist role for Cycling Australia. You were a performance manager and coach at Green Edge, and that was during your postdoc, right? And I think, and and that's when we first met. You were just trans- transitioning into that role. And then you moved into this head of performance solutions at Oz Cycling, and you did that for a few years. And that seemed like a dream job for just about every exercise physiologist that's into cycling. And, um, and now after that, just recently, you moved into this role at the Australian Institute of Sport. But before we move into that, just a little bit of continuation. Our last guest was Harry Sweeney, and he had some really good things to say about you. So because you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. So we wanted to play 
some snippets of what some of the things that he said about you before we get into it. And then for any of the listeners that haven't had a chance to listen to Harry's interview yet. So with the the sports science side of things there, like there's not many under 23 athletes get access to that side of things. So were they your coaches? And like, were, were you working with a coach at that point that was a sports scientist? Or did you have your own coach away from that and you just consulted the sports scientists in that AIS program? Yeah, so we had Pelham and Asper, who is pretty well-renowned in, in many countries, I would assume, um, but particularly Australia. Um, he worked with Caleb Bjorn a lot. So he was our main sports scientist and also somewhat of a referral coach that we could um, bounce ideas off. But, um, you know, even just to have someone like Paolo, even if he's not having daily input into your training, something that you can't really, um, you know, you can't put a value on, I don't think. But I, I'd have to say that I think Paolo is probably one of the main drivers of all of the success that that program had. Every experience I had with him was absolutely positive and really reassuring. Yeah, some high praise there from Harry Sweeney. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> I, yeah, I must say that the, the driver of success of that program was probably, you know, starting from the, the performance director back then would have been uh, Kevin Tabota with the vision of having like a program in Europe and then like a, uh, the, the manager of the program was the coach James Victor, I think that they are actually the one that they managed and, and led the program. So uh, I, I was just uh, helping, as probably as you said, uh, like a, a generalist trying to f- find solutions. But yeah, no, it's pleasant, pleasant to say, to hear mm-hmm. that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Harry was uh, pleased. Yeah. yeah, so I guess um, kind of for the, the conversation, it would start at the beginning, you know, the, the earliest that I know your exposure to cycling was when you were a junior. Uh, and I know you went to track worlds for pursuit. Yeah. yeah. This is, this is stuff from last millennium. So like 19, 19. Yeah. 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 But I think there's a few kind of key things that have always interested me about that. And, and one of them was like, how much do you think that influenced your career path? Um, Oh, that's a good question. Well, a, a fair bit, as in, like, I clearly loved sport and loved cycling. It did certainly have a big influence in, in, in the way the way it happened. Like, uh, when I was at the, you know, when and where I was doing what, and I'm happy to go into it in a second, but um, had a clear impact on the fact that I eventually decided to study sports science and. Um, by that, I mean that just as a coincidence, July 98 is when I did my, I, part, yeah, I was lucky enough to represent Italy in the track board championship. So July 98, I remember as we were pretty much competing, there was a Tour de France on and there was like the biggest doping scandal ever up until that point was the, the Festina doping scandal, which probably, you know, mm-hmm. Kids nowadays, I don't even know if you know about it, but was the yeah, it was kind of shocking. And uh, again, for me, that it was kind of I was at the pinnacle of my career, uh, which I mean, by the way, there's no career. It was like an under nineteen, so it's mm-hmm. just nothing. But anyway, I was kind of for for my life experience was the pinnacle, and I got this news that oh, the other side we were overseas, and so like overseas in, as in in France. Um, there was this this thing going on. I was a bit shocked, and, uh, and when I came back, I remember like yeah, like 
trying to catch up with what has happened and just the idea that, well, that's when I started to wonder, like, like, can I actually be a, is it possible to be a clean professional cyclist? And, uh, and again, I was 98 and I came to the conclusion that it seemed unlikely to me back then. Uh, and I actually, I, I ended up my season there, like, which uh, probably was kind of drastic. And uh, that's where I made the decision to to try to stay in sport by studying sports science. So if you want that, that cycling experience that, that, that mm-hmm. led to me studying and mm-hmm. trying to stay involved. The, yeah, I did a team pursuit and some of the athletes like on the podium went down on to win Milan Sanremo or being successful. Like, so like, it was a good year and um, yeah, I've been happy to be a spectator of the sport. Do you think having that experience as a junior at the world level one, do you think it helped you get a foot in the door with Mapie? And second, do you think that has helped you in your career path? Um, yeah, potentially, yes. Like, who knows? Uh, but I never thought about it. But uh, clearly, there. If, if I look back, there are a couple of points in time where because of that, I met some people and they were in their career path as well. They were younger and they were like, like very young sport director or you know young researcher, and um, that I met them very early on in my career. That then they became like, for example, again as a, as a, I was a cyclist, a seventeen-year-old cyclist, uh, one of the sport director in the local team. So I was driving his little car, ended up being a team manager in a professional team, and I, uh, via Mapei. So he became a sport director, Mapei, and then a team manager. So. Clearly that, yeah, it's just a connection that happened kind of randomly because we were in the same area. I was a cyclist. He was like, probably was 25 or not. wasn't, yeah, you know, was a student himself. But then he was at Mapei and, and via, yeah, that might have had, I don't know, the foot in the door, but uh, kind of knowing someone, they, because with, with the team, well, with Mapei, I should have said Mapei, I actually have never been in the in the team. By the time I joined the the organization, the team, the professional team didn't wasn't existing anymore. The pro teams uh, ceased, ceased to exist in two thousand two, and I joined the the, the lab in two thousand four five. Uh, so when when I joined, it was purely like um yeah like a a physiology lab, and like there was some research going on, and so. I, did I answer uh, the question or I got that, lost? That seemed pretty good. One thing I have, Paolo, uh, when you decided to move to working in sports science rather than cycling yourself, were you worried that you were going to be just dealing with athletes that were doping then, like the, with performance-enhancing drugs from from that side of things again? Or did you feel like once you moved away from competing yourself that it was going to be easy to stay away from that side of the sport? That's a very good question, uh, which certainly I did not consider and ponder back then. Otherwise, it would have been a kind of ceiling saying, you know, I don't want to get drugs. I'm, I'm going to give drugs yeah. <laughs> or, or, or enter an organization that cheats. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, most likely the, the reason why I didn't think it through is because maybe I wasn't dreaming to, to get to coach at a professional level and all of that. As a matter of fact, uh, between from when I stopped to probably 2006, 7, 8, I mostly go, well, up until 2005, before, be- between when I, I stopped racing and when I started at Mapei, I've been coaching, you know, kids 10 years old at the local velodrome as like a, an assistant yeah. coach. So like clearly there is no doping there. It's just like skill acquisition kind of things up yeah. and down the, you know, the, the, the bands and things like that. 
And then when I, uh, by the time I joined MAPEI, I, I started coaching like under 19 and then under, under 23. And then as, as you go now, 2005, 6, 7, then they started to introduce the biological passport and all these things and kind of cycling got better and yeah. cleaner and cleaner. And eventually, I think my, the first pro I coached was around 2010. And by then, I'm quite confident that cycling was in a good, yeah. in a very good so place. So you're probably looking at it had the best of the timing then. Like if you had yeah. been 10 years earlier, it might have been really bad timing if you were trying to keep yeah. everything clean. Yeah. No, again, you ask a very good question and one that I, yeah, probably just because of the way things happen, I, I wasn't smart enough back then when I was 18 to think about it. I just thought, yeah, I'd like to work in sport, but yeah, good <laughs> question. I like it. Yeah, so speaking of being smart or not smart when you're 18, what kind of advice would you give yourself if you could speak to your 18-year-old self in terms of career advice moving forward, kind of knowing where you're going to go now? That's another good question. Well, I guess probably something like, I don't know, popular as like follow your passion, you know, because back then I did do what I, I, I felt like doing. Like actually for... Not not immediately. For um for one year, I actually enrolled to be a nurse. I think mm-hmm. I <laughs> this is quite unsuccessful. I went lessons like uni university lessons for a month, and then day one in the hospital, like I I, I the understood wasn't for me, and like I, I only did one day, uh, and and actually to please my parents because they pushed me, but otherwise I would have not done it. And I, I yeah I, I knew exactly that yeah that wasn't my future, and uh, but that's part of learning again. I. Yeah, probably you know you need to put an effort and to actually achieve, achieve what you want you need to do something that you, you you enjoy this one quote i like from elon musk and i feel is quite polarizing people either love or hate him but doesn't matter i don't mm-hmm. love nor hate him uh, but i like this quote when they ask because actually i feel a lot uh, like it's something that i've been feeling for a long time anyway the, the quote is like if you need motivation don't do it and and that kind of goes back to to put it in context, when I was at, at my pay in the lab, I used to test a lot of, you know, 18, 19, junior, under 23. And, you know, you do like a view to max test, whatever, like a, a physiological assessment. And we used to have like a, a 10 minutes with the coaches and athletes to look at the results and just to provide a bit of a comment, you know, compared to some normative data, you, you're, you're right here or you're ranked here or there. And often there were like parents and our coaches trying to come to talk to me before the athletes join us to say, well, we need to, you know, motivate to say like the, the, the kid is good and we need to, and it's kind of the opposite to say, like, if anything, we need to be honest and tell them that, you know, you, you are average, that, that, well, anyway, we should be honest, not, not, but certainly not trying to push and convince someone keep going for another season because you're just making his or her life more difficult. Like you just being honest saying your average and he for he or she is extremely motivated. They can go on and become a pro cyclist anyway, even with an average view to max. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I like that motivation bit. Yeah. And we've actually mentioned that paper that you did back then where you looked at the Italian junior data and how they're in their career path. We brought that up in one of our episodes about turning amateur and going pro. And then I think we mentioned it again not too long ago. So was that your one of your first research papers then? First paper in which I was first author. I was quite lucky because it was like on a big journal and all of that. Was that about the time that you started working with Dave Martin? 
uh, a, bit, a bit earlier, probably around the time I, I started to meet him, because I, uh, I've done that at MAPEI. It was kind of the first paper I published when I was at MAPEI. I, I bet it would have been submitted 2000 or published in 2008. And by then, I've been at MAPEI for a couple of years. And Dave Martin was one of the Australian researchers coming to the lab with them. Um, with the Australian team, so I would have already met him by then. I guess that would be kind of an interesting transfer, though, that I don't know how many people would really realize, because you could you could have just gone through and gone through all the motions on the career path that you had without ever touching research again. But then, and research is not easy to do. I don't know if people outside of the research world realize how hard and difficult it is to do, especially when working with elite athletes. So to be in the role where you're this sports scientist in the terms of like helping athletes sense and versus the sports scientist that does research and then to take on a research role, that's, that's a pretty big step. I mean, I think that's something to be kind of congratulated on and you moved into that. How much do you think moving into the research role affected your practical side? I mean, I was in my PhD working with Chris. There was a lot of writing, a lot of getting hammered on your writing. And I don't know how much that my ability to write now really helps me coach athletes. But there's all the other things that go with it of the ability to look up papers, to think critically and all that kind of stuff. So do you think your research that you've done has helped to inform your practical side? And if so, in which way do you think that helped? Um well, I, I think so. I would like to say, like, but say, hundred percent. I also, I, I also say that if what you recall or your experience with my supervising is mostly around writing, maybe we weren't good supervisors. I don't know. I feel like writing is clearly part of it, but there is more to it. I think you were the supervisor that was in the lab with me the most, which, which might be a little bit of a knock on. Chris and, and Jeremiah, even since they live here in Perth, but um, it might have, it would have been really close a close call. It's very different here in Australia versus how things go in the in America, where the supervisor was in every single data collection with me yeah. for both my supervisors back home. No, I guess going back to the question, um, I guess the way I got into research is very different, probably from uh, uh, how other people might have got into research or what you describe in, in your PhD experience. As in, um, MAPEI is a, like a private company mm-hmm. and um, wh- where the goal was actually basically to provide services to customers mm-hmm. uh, and research was just a way to find answers in the way that, you know, mm-hmm. um, y- y- you're just curious, you want to know how to provide better services, how to provide better training plan, how to improve things. And the c- common thing to do is actually to look at your data, and uh, which is probably something that many people do. The difference was that because of a friend of a friend of a friend, uh, someone suggested or started publishing papers. And eventually there was these things that, you know, this couple of guys within the lab are actually publishing. And would you like to join? Would you like to know? I don't know. It, was, it felt like a bit of an aside things or like post 5 p.m. thing, like, you know, when everybody else goes home, we can stop and, and, and find a paper and try to write something up and do it, make it better. So science was or research was a way to ensuring that our attempt of being data-driven was actually of, of good quality. And there was this idea that, you know, even the, the peer review process, actually, you get someone checking what we've done. So it was, I, I think it was actually a genuine attempt to 
find answers, ensuring that the answers are right, and getting people to check our work because we knew that we were, you know, clearly not the smartest in the business. So peer review was seen almost as like a privilege, again, getting feedback and getting better. So like all the research questions and everything else came from a genuine quest, like, like a practical question that we had. Um, you mentioned that paper before, and the question was like, because we were testing a lot of under-19 for the national team, like, is that is that even important to become a pro cyclist, given that the, the, you know, the ultimate goal is to sign a contract? Is that even relevant? And eventually, uh, that paper says that back then, because I'd be happy to highlight that that was a data set from the late 90s, early 2000s. So like back then, a view to mark as an under-17 under was not a determinant to, to sign a pro contract. Um, but again, it was like just a genuine question that we, we wanted answers. Mm-hmm. And most of my colleagues at Napay were actually publishing on soccer, but mm-hmm. same thing because they loved soccer. They used to work in, uh, work in the sport and they just wanted to know how to, how to improve the uh, recommendations to coaches, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so while you were at Napay, I think it was Dave Martin, correct me if I'm wrong, that suggested that you hop into a PhD program during that era in your life. Because if I remember right, you said that you live like right down the street from Mape, right? Like just roll out of bed and go to work. And then once you went into that role, you stayed in Europe, but it was a lot of moving around and a lot of like working with a team during the day and then working on a laptop at night, as opposed to like me, I just worked on <laughs> at my desk at home and rode up to uni every day. And I can't imagine having that stress of the PhD while w- doing all that work with the, I think with your, with the U23 team at that time. So again, like how, how did the PhD go hand in hand? And, and I mean, that was probably a pretty amazing experience. I know um, I got a tiny, tiny taste of that when we went to the world tour Academy and just, that was a really cool experience. And then I know Paul Merck's, my colleague and your other PhD student that you're working with, he had a little bit of that for a couple of months. But like my understanding is that you were in that for the whole PhD, right? So, I mean, that's like the one of the dream jobs, I think, or like the dream PhDs for a lot of people that would be sports scientists who are into cycling research. So what was that experience like doing your PhD and your research for your PhD while working you know, with pro teams and a U23 team. Yeah, so th- that's actually what used to be called, uh, like, and uh, like I, it was referred to as an industry-based PhD, mm-hmm. where you do like a, you have a, there is a, like, in my case, it was like three parties agreement. Uh, the PhD, I had a scholarship with Edith Cowan University, mm-hmm. uh, but then the, there was an agreement with uh, this, with Cycling Australia, with the Cycling Federation, and with the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport. So they all provided slightly different um, kind of support, in-kind support. And, uh, um, and and so, again, the definition of an industry-based PhD is a, is a PhD where, like, you, you're meant to do research and eventually, you know, uh, you complete uh, is a PhD by research. So you need to publish your papers, uh, but also you are kind of expected to be part of the sport, if you, I don't want to say to service the sport, but it is like pro- providing some sports science support, which is actually probably what you described. And uh, uh, I found myself traveling with the team back then. Was the it changed name in, as in cycling? You know, cycling team changes sponsor, changes slightly the structure, and so it changed name almost each season. But 
was roughly the, the under-23 or the continental team, uh, the, the Australian national team, and became like a development team for what was Green Edge and then Bike Exchange, etc., etc. So that was the environment. I mean, you mentioned traveling and like made me smile. I, I think recently I, when I, well, recently, when I had to apply for Australian citizenship and all these things, you need to provide, you know, like documented evidence of your residency, like where, where you've been uh, for the last 10 years, <laughs> which <laughs> that gives you maybe the nightmare. Because uh, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure, like, and I'm quite good at, keeping track of stuff and I like, I don't know, I like to take a photo and put it in folders. And so like from photo, anyway, I, I, I strongly believe I, I looked into it and uh, I haven't thought about it for a while, but for, for the whole PhD, I, I haven't slept for more than two consecutive weeks in the same bed as in like, it's, it was either, you know, like a training camp or like, a, um, even sometimes it's just a weekend race, but I haven't been here. Yeah, I remember like, like no more than two weeks in the same, in the same bed or building. Sounds crazy, but yeah, it was out of trouble. Uh, but nevertheless, well, I mean, th- th- that's probably the reason um, why you build that that relationship with the athletes and you learn to deal with the coach. And, and like, it, it is quite interesting because I think it's quite important. In the, in the, it has been in my growing up and becoming who I am. Uh, like you learn all the soft skills of yeah, just surviving what a high performance environment is. And what are those skills to survive in that environment? Do you think if you're going to name, name your top three, I guess? This is not about being a researcher or being a good sports scientist. It's about surviving the, what's the question? Surviving the high performance. Yeah. What are the things, you know, one of the things I took home is being on time. Like you got to be on time. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And the other one is just, I mean, I, I guess, yeah. You're, you're second. I mean, right. I mean, in that environment, the athletes are always first. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, guess, I guess it's a mixed. For me, the way I my, my experience was a mix of so I, I probably I struggle now to to split whether is what is high performance, what was just that cycling culture because also the way that you, Australian cyclists live in Europe, which you where we were, is very different because you you, you know you're overseas, you you are like so you you, have, you create that sense of community where you actually you live and share like like pretty much twenty four seven apart from when you actually are out on a training session or. Uh, with colleagues because they, yeah, like it's a, everyone is a resident in Australia, but spent four months in Europe, so you end up like in a in a hotel room or something like that. So like it's a very unique situation. But well, part of that you need to be flexible, you need to be adaptable, you need to be sociable, you need to be you know you need to be able to listen, you need to be co- to be able to cope with other people' needs. Um, and, and this is just on the human, like not, not even again w- without considering the high performance. And then when it comes to high performance or, or anyway sport, it means like you know pretty much working every day. I don't remember having had a holiday or a weekend because like in cycling, all the competitions are on a Sunday, and often you travel on a Friday to then try the course or you know get ready on the way the day before, and, and then you race and you come back and you train, and it kind of never stops. And on top of that, you're trying to do research, which means that, you know, often you, you write up things in the evenings. And so it is like, um, I don't know, I don't like to say hard work because as in, I like to say that like, <laughs> you should be smart, you know, what do you say? Uh, work smart instead of work hard or like, but yeah, I think in my situation, yeah, I, I guess like working hard is, was part of one of the things that allowed me to thrive in that environment, not just to survive. Yeah. And so one of my questions was like, what was 
uh, the day in a life like in that role. But um, I think you, you you answered that. But um, in your opinion, in that role, when you were kind of that hybrid sports science support uh, coaching and PhD candidate at that time, what maybe unique value do you feel like you were adding to the team? Uh, well, with a team based in Italy, certainly speaking Italian was uh, really useful. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I guess more, more seriously, more serious. Not like like the knowledge, the specific knowledge of the sport is uh, is of yeah, it's really of a high value. Like understanding, uh, I guess having been in the sport and all that allows you like foresee the future or like to be to be able to predict what might happen and so you're able to understand and, 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 and put yourself in a position to be useful before before the, the need actually even arise. Mm-hmm. Because, you, you, I don't know, you name it, from simple things like uh, helping at the feed zone or a set, during a race. It's not like the job of a researcher, not to a PhD student. So, uh, but if you're working in cycling, you end up helping, um, especially in small teams. That was a, 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 a you know, development team you end up helping at the field zone and you end up like I don't know uh, you name it so like you, you need to understand where is the best place to, to, to feed us let's to feed where yeah you need to know about the, the rules so just, just the knowledge of the sport is clearly important and then going back to what you mentioned before like the generalist I guess my combined with what I could bring to the sport. Uh, I think my my yeah my my characteristics of me being a generalist. I was just very good at very good. I don't know. I was good enough at finding answers. As in, I'm totally aware that I don't have all the answers, but I was relatively good at, at knowing the right person w- w- with the answer. And, and that was just via being connected with you know the right people in Italy, the right people at the Australian Institute of Sport. I had, you know I was lucky to have the connection with you know the best dietitian that in Australia and potentially like on the planet mm-hmm. and like you name it. Yeah. Yes. Back then, like it's like at best experts in altitude training. Uh, so if you have a question, if the coach wants to know, we go to how long do we stay in Livigno, which is one of the classic altitude places in Italy. How long do we stay? So what give me 24 hours and I'll find out. Did you ring up Chris Gore at that point? Yeah. Chris <laughs> or Laura, Laura Garvican, uh, Laura Lewis, like well, a lot of experts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what you were describing there actually sounds a lot like how I envision your role that you had with Oz Cycling, where you were the performance solutions director. But the main difference being that you were um, an adult and rattled for that position. So you got to have one, you weren't moving around as much. So when you transitioned from, you know, working with Green Edge and working with the Australian U23 team, what was the big changes there in the career? Was it pretty easy transition i mean it must have been nice to be sleeping in the same bed more than two weeks in a row at that point but back then uh, we had one one little daughter so like yeah mm-hmm. the, the change was kind of welcome because it helped settling in with the family as well mm-hmm. even though i mean sorry that is was going down the personal thing saying actually having a, having a job that you know sent me to europe to see my parents and family for six months well, can't complain, you know, wouldn't that wasn't that bad. But anyway, yeah, transitioning to the uh, or cycling role as a, yeah, uh, it was a, a change. Yes, uh, there was yeah, I would say like a, um, a steep learning curve. Mostly uh, as in um, I went from being what was pretty much a 
one-man band. Uh, as I said, I would rely on a lot of people and connect, And but I was the one traveling and connecting with the outlets and, you know, talking with the coach on a daily basis. And in this new role, um, I, I almost stepped back almost completely and suddenly from dealing with athletes. And, and pretty much my job was kind of being between uh, the coaches and the performance support team. I was extremely lucky that the colleagues at, uh, back then was cycling Australia anyway were like really excellent. All the specialists were like, you know, really, really, really good. So made my, I, I feel my job easier. But yeah, certainly a different role. And going back, you know, I think you in the introduction you you, you said something about the generalist or you know be, being, and I, I I do feel like I was generalist. And as a matter of fact, actually, uh, you might find interesting that when I started uh, a month after I started the there was this thing about uh, maybe induction of athletes, and they, I, I was asked to to introduce myself and they, you know try to explain uh, their role because the head of performance solutions was new and was like yeah a desire to, you know, again, explain to the athletes what are you doing. And I, I actually used the, um, the, the <laughs> there was an old photo of uh, Peter Sagan back then was world champion with, uh, with a lot of bidons or, you know, water bottles in, in his jersey. And uh, and I, I remember I used that saying that I, I was, my role or my aim was to be the, you know, world champion domestic, as in the, the best domestic possible. And the analogy was that basically that, I wasn't a specialist because I wasn't the physiologist, I wasn't the dietitian, or you name it, the uh, engineer. I wasn't. I'm not, you know, the physical therapist. I'm not a specialist. I wasn't. And in the analogy, you know, in, in your cycling team, you have a sprinter and a climber, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all all of them somehow they get in the face of the public when they can compete for a stage. And in our in this analogy, the the, the the public or the people seeing watching the specialists would be the athletes. And athletes will kind of never see me because I'm in the office trying to help the specialists excel and do their jobs. But, but I was, again, rarely or never uh, in front of athletes. And, uh, and again, the, which I think the, the analogy I, I thought was fitting because also the, the nature of their role was kind of hard to describe. Not that the job was harder, but was just hard to describe in the same way that a domestic probably struggles to explain, you know, their family, what are they doing? Because you don't win bike races. What are you doing? What's your job? And what a domestic does is that, you know, there is a bike crash. You need to decide, am I giving my leader the bike or the frame or, or the front wheel? Uh, is it raining? Am I going back to get raining coats or is it hot? I'm going to get, you know, more drinks. So like did it or makes the call. So the, the domestic is actually like a hidden role needs to be uh, able to adapt to very different scenario, trying to be like it's a perfect generalist, you know, sometimes the front on the flat, sometimes uphill. And so that, yeah, I feel like, yeah, that, that, that's pretty much summarized all my experience those, those couple of years at the, yeah, down in Adelaide. Yeah, so I'd like to kind of drill down into the brass tacks of being a master generalist. And that's kind of a broad direction to go in. So I think one of the things I'd like to ask is knowing that, you know, a lot of this information is going to come from the scientific literature and that type of thing. For you, what are some of your tactics for staying up on the literature? And do you have goals about how many papers you try to read? I know a lot of the papers that you're exposed to are coming to you because you're asked to do peer review which means that you're just handed papers and you kind of can keep up on things that way. 
Uh, I don't know about that if that was any more, but I know that was happening during your postdoc. So yeah, let's start with that. Like, how how are you keeping up on the literature, or are you, or or how how do you feel about that pursuit? I think it's a good question. Are you? Are you is a better question. <laughs> well, and and the answer I'm trying. It's uh, difficult. What's the the hashtag or the, the, those things? You know, uh, too long to too long to read. Till there, till uh, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, no, these, these are the days of you know, you can't even read like a two tweets in a row because like it just takes too long. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually just made the, the combination of the, the, the Twitter comments and the reading the uh, written paper actually just make me think that a challenge of someone like in my position, and I guess it's kind of common, I guess it's common of other coaches or other professional working in sport. Uh, this, again, this is my perspective is that there are some days and sometimes multiple days where, you know, you, you work your whole day, mm-hmm. you wake up, you start working and, you know, in the evening you're still working Be- because Research gets published all, almost immediately on Twitter, even before it gets published in a journal. Mm-hmm. And athletes, best case scenario, they train five, six hours a day, but in a very respectful way. But I would say athletes have more spare time than, you know, even because, you, you know, recovery is part of the profession mm-hmm. anyway. And um, I found myself so many times with, you know, athletes reading papers before I, I have. Mm-hmm. And so, like, how do you get to a paper? And often you get, like, you actually get a question from, from, from an athlete going, oh, I've read this. What do you think? I say, like, oh, I don't know, <laughs> because I actually have a job. And my job doesn't allow me to read papers. <laughs> and um, and so, yeah, how do you get the papers? Sometimes from reviewers but or journal editors, but sometimes from, from athletes, which is probably the best thing, because actually then you know that what you are reading is actually something of interest from that athlete, because they actually they, they want to know the answer. Mm-hmm. So that's how sometimes you, you get to a paper. Uh, I do try to read as much as possible, but it's certainly not enough for a combination of reasons. I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm old enough that in my early days at Mapei, you know, there were, we had a subscription to a journal and you get mm-hmm. the journal once per, I don't even remember, a month for a quarter. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of looking forward to, to the journal to get in the, in the mail and then you have to share it with colleagues and, and you read it, you know, cover to cover. Mm-hmm. But now there are like... I don't even know, I wouldn't be able to put a number to like an endless amount of paper. So you can't read everything. And uh, I end up reading less than I should, could. So that, that's one component. The other one is actually also the, the role I had doesn't really rely, you know, I, I think it's more, and maybe I might be wrong, but I guess it depends on what you read. But anyway, uh, what, what I was about to say is that it's more the, the specialist that actually should ensure that, you know, they are on top of the literature when it comes to diet and physiology, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess as a generalist, you can still read papers, but they could be about, you know, Whatever. leadership yeah. or managing a team or dynamics. And uh, in my role now, like, a, I guess I could describe myself or, yeah, as an administrator, I don't know. Like, you know, I read papers on how to write up research agenda or how to work on the, you know, research setting and, uh, priority setting these things so yeah you can always read papers but I guess you kind of move away from the the, the actual sports science mm-hmm. yeah I, I found it was really hard to read papers out of my specialty during my PhD and it was even hard to read papers that were in my specialty because sometimes it just gets so busy but now it's my goal to try to set aside an hour a day to read a paper now I try to do that in the beginning of the day and I'm finding that I'm mulling over what I read throughout the day and I think that kind of helps me remember what I've read and then I can pull that out and apply it later so this is a new habit that I've 
picked up. Um, Damien, he has the Cycling Science Digest, and we're talking about how many papers that come out on cycling science every month. I think it was like 30 or something like that just a month ago. So if you're reading a paper every day, you're still not keeping up on the research. Mm -hmm. Figuring it's like five days a week, right? So you give yourself some time off on the weekends. But then there's all those papers that I didn't get to during my PhD that I'm trying to stay up on. So um, it's kind of like, well, who is keeping up on all this research? <laughs> that's that's kind of my question. Right or now. like, what is the what is the process that you are using as you're in your new role? Is something interesting? Like, how does like obviously you're going to be you're directing Australia's sport science? It's a big question and it's a big topic. I think the the solution might be in the space of looking into the quality of the publications rather than trying to read everything. Uh, there have been some recent, even meta-analysis, like showing that previous meta-analysis on the same data set might have not been as good or as free of bias as they thought they were. So there's a lot of focus, uh, and I think we should go down that path on, on uh, ensuring that what you publish, if you're thinking about publishing, but then also if you what you read is actually of good quality. Uh, unfortunately, it's not enough to be published in a, in a, in a journal, even in a good journal, to, to say that actually it's of good quality. Um, it's part of science. I mean, it's you know, science autocorrects and all of that, but like I, I guess the process or the if, or the, the, the goal would be to ensure that everyone has a level of education that allows to understand the to to read the the method section, understand it and, and make a, like a critical analysis mm-hmm. of that. And then you, you know you start there and, and and then you go to the results and you, you and you either care or not care for the results. I think there are some uh, I was going to say popular, but I don't know if they're the right uh, term. But anyway, it's, it's not uncommon to hear critics to, for example, to all the recent uh, infographic thing about like everything is an infographic where you know, people producing infographics look like they have a job. They need to put, put out an infographics every day or whatever the uh, timeline is. And, and, and sometimes, yeah, well, the infographics, they really don't, don't account for, not, I mean, not all of them. Mm-hmm they go through the, the uh, like a quality process or a quality assurance process. And um, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit of a funny world. Well, then I think actually there are publications on that as well. You know, the, the more retweet you get, like your paper gets, then, then five years down the path, you get more, more citations on the actual journals mm-hmm. uh, because we, we are human beings. You know, if you write a paper on whatever topic, you name it, if you think like, what can I cite? Mm-hmm. Clearly your mind goes like, oh, actually I've saw that, seen these things on a, on Twitter because there is an, an algorithm that actually pushed it toward you. And so that's what the one you remember. And then probably you cite it and someone else cites it. And eventually, yeah, you create this monster that it all started with an infographics. And, and, I mean, monster. Sometimes it's well-deserved, but the, I guess you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So the aim is actually just to create like um, a team of scientists that they understand research methods, that they they go for quality rather than quantity. They, you know, I appreciate, you know, uh, trying to set aside some time to read one paper per day. That, that's great. But maybe maybe instead of, and, and that's actually sounds what, what you're doing, Jason, but instead of 
aiming for reading one paper per day. You, you aim for understanding one paper per day. Yeah, that's what I'm actually you going I mean? for. Or, yeah, you know, that's why I say, like, you, you're actually going, going down the path. And actually, to kind of speak to the results thing, I would tend to lean more on uh, the results of a meta-analysis, right? Um, but yeah. sometimes you get, for example, you get a meta-analysis on maybe training int- intensity distribution papers, right? And they'll go into... Uh, pyramid versus polarized training schemes and they don't really get into the methods too much and what i'm finding right now is that the methods are actually kind of valuable and they're good to read the methods so you can be critical about what you're picking up from the results i mean that's really important to read the methods and understand the methods but i think it's also good to read the methods just to see how the researchers did it so that you can see how easily or difficult it would be for you to do the that with your athletes no and i find that reading the introductions and things like that just stimulate thoughts and um i'm I'm hoping i can keep keep up on that habit yeah no i agree that's pretty important yeah but i totally understand where you're at too because i man i've been there where it's can i really spend this time reading papers i don't have this time to do that i have to kind of rely more on critical thinking and and one of the things that I think I've picked up from you as a master journalist is the ability to think critically, the ability to hypothesize, the ability to kind of sense bullshit when you hear it. And I think that is probably another kind of key component of being a good generalist because, yeah, you can, won't have the time to dig down into any things, but there should be things that give you green lights and red flags when you hear them. Um, so is that something potentially that you, uh, approach things that way? I mean, when I have athletes come to me and I hear something I'm like, mm, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'll have to, you know, then you're like, well, I have to dig into it a little bit more, but, uh, yeah, I would have to say from my, my sense from, you know, knowing you these years is that you do have a good kind of bullshit detector as well. You just you, you, you just mentioned a couple of twice the BS thing, and you just reminded me there was this um, YouTube course. I think it was actually from a university lecture, and I think the title. I think there was a uh, calling calling BS, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, which I watched some time ago, and I now I don't remember the details, but uh, I did find it interesting, and I suspect that yeah, that, that based on what I recall right now, I could be biased. But it was something that I would have recommended. I think there was like, you know, your introduction to BS. And yeah, I think it was like, a, like my wife and I said, like, <laughs> so we, we do some professional development at home, like in the evenings. <laughs> uh, so like we set up, so like now we watch this course and kind of like a long time ago. But anyway, yeah, I think, I think we completed it. We watched it. Hey, it's Damien here. As soon as you fire up the Karu 2, you see the difference. You realize just how clearly you can see your data with a high-res, full-color, smartphone-like screen. And then, when you start using it, you realize the touchscreen display is beautiful and responsive and gives you on-the-go flexibility, and it's even water and scratch resistant. Then when you get riding, you experience the Car Route 2's advanced and industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities, which really do set it apart from other GPS options. 
so you can explore with confidence. Make these routes on Strava, Komoot, and more, and then seamlessly import them to use right away. And of course, routing, rerouting, and pin drop routing are all available with turn-by-turn directions and upcoming elevation changes. And it's all there waiting for you. And what's even better is that for a limited time, Hammerhead has an incredible deal. Buy a Hammerhead 2 at hammerhead.io forward slash trade and get up to $170 when you trade in your current cycling computer. That's a rebate of up to $170 when you trade up to a Karu 2 from Hammerhead and trade in your current cycling computer only for a limited time. This offer won't last long and it's only available at hammerhead.io forward slash trade. So don't wait to trade in and trade up to your Karu 2 today and get up to $170 off your purchase. That's hammerhead.io forward slash trade to get your trade started today. And with that, let's get back into it. Another kind of interesting thing about your background is that you're really in the magic. And I would say from, I mean, Penn and Teller, big famous uh, magicians, and they had a show called Bullshit. And so I would imagine like being into magic is probably going to inform a lot of your ability to think critically too. And I was actually just looking at a paper that you tweeted. I think you might have tweeted about a while ago, like years ago. It was the one about how magic can inform medicine. And I haven't had a chance to read the paper, but how do you think your interest in magic has uh, informed your practice uh, in in the world you're in right now? I mean, that's kind of a random question and probably people don't really think about it, but like magic is a pretty interesting thing. I I never got into it as deeply as you did, but um, yeah, that's my question is like, how, how do you think that? Um, no, thanks for that. Uh, I, I do find it extremely fascinating, uh, and I'm yeah, yeah. I think it's fair to say I'm passionate about it. Um, well, I, did, I think one of the, magic is such such a complex art um, that um, there are many things I think can be taken from magic. Uh, let me try to go in order, but I mean the, the basic process or the basic thing is trying to create something that's seemingly impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine having a workshop of four of us get together and you, you name it, like we want to make this mouse levitate or whatever, or disappear, you know, how, how do we do it? And uh, we, you put some constraint and you think, and if you give enough time, like four of us, I'm sure we can come up with a method uh, to make it disappear from, you know, whatever the, the constraints are from the table or from the, I don't know, from the desk or midair. And just that in itself is quite it's quite a powerful thing, you know, like the ability to be creative to a point that you create something that it's seemingly impossible. Mm-hmm. And clearly, well, there is a trick, there is a method, but that's that's where like one of the reasons why it's interesting because uh, a classic things in magic, the same effect, huh, which is actually what the spectator sees, can be done in a, in a number of very different ways. And often magicians use the, you know, maybe sometimes they perform the same effect three times and they use different methods so to exclude that, you know, if something is flying and there is, you think there's a rope and the next they pass their hand on top of the things flying, so like this certainly is not a rope, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. to exclude the other solutions. Uh, and uh, that, that concept of creating something impossible um, 
And I was listening to this podcast not long ago about like the moon landing and travel, going to the moon. And now, you know, now it's kind of uh, relatively popular, the, the, the topic of going to Mars, mm-hmm. uh, trying to send, yeah. send rocket to Mars. And, um, uh, and apparently, based on what they were saying, right, that, that I trusted, like back in the, uh, when the Apollo mission landed on the moon, I, I think they, back at NASA, basically they told these guys, you know, we need to, uh, get to the moon and and all the experts all the you know the, the leading scientists on rocketry and they said like it's impossible and pretty much what they've done and they take it, take it with a grain of salt and do your research but pretty much they fired those and they brought in a number of young people i think the average age of the people actually on, on mission control eventually was like 21 22 they were so young and there was one of those that actually and I think, I'm pretty confident this is almost an exact quote. He said, we were so young that we didn't know that it wasn't, was not possible. And so kind mm-hmm. of they achieved it because they didn't know that it wasn't impossible. But, and, and, you know, going to the moon, and especially the way it was done, I think they, they were given like an eight year, uh, eight years um, time frame. You know, the, it had to be done by the end of the, the decade. Uh, it was impossible, but these guys, they just did it. They just... And, and clearly they were not magician, but that, that idea of thinking in a way that, you know, I don't want limits, I don't want constraints, I want to push the boundaries. I, I just I just need to be creative in a way that I don't stick with common rules and try to, yeah, they're thinking out of the box. So that's probably, and that's actually just one one of the many components of reasons why magic is interesting. You mentioned a paper uh, about what, I think the title is around what can doctors learn from magicians. Mm-hmm. There is more than one, mm-hmm. and that one, for example, is all about about communication. And you know, they, they, um, because as as a magician, and and actually, as a matter of fact, that it's common to a lot of performers. But you you, you need your audience to listen and to to uh, engage. You know, if you're a street magician, people can just walk away from you. As a doctor, sometimes you have attention because you have the power of medicine and people need you. But there was this paper saying, like, well, you should learn from people that they, via millennium, millennia of, you know, refining the art, they know how to communicate, they know how to engage, they, they kind of naturally learn the body language and all those things to improve their skills and to engage and they were kind of making the argument that then it improves your performance as a doctor. And actually, I, I, I have a couple of draft, draft papers I never, never completed on how medicine, no, sorry, how magic could, you know, help coaching. But a simple example, for, I don't know if it's from that paper, but, you know, I'll, I'll see it all the time nowadays with the, with those phones, with smartphones. I'm mm-hmm. talking with someone and they check their phone and they, and actually, because I'm old enough that generally when people look, watch, look at the, their phones and their wrist, it means that they are late. Mm-hmm. I still go like, am I to- like you know, I'm, I'm still going, am I talking for too long? Do I need to stop? Let them go. While probably younger generation, they're just checking a message. You know, the phone vibrated or something and they're just checking the message. But I, in my mind, every time they do it, I go like, oh, what have I done wrong? Why do they need to leave? And I guess like what you can learn from, well, if you go and watch a magician, I bet you that he will not check his phone, his or her phone while he's trying to engage you. So like those are basic things, but like, you know, look in the eyes and pay attention and listen and, and you know, engage. And um, so that those are some of the things that, you know, like in that paper, like a, a doctor, again, potentially a coach could learn from, I, I would say, I'd say from, from a performer. It doesn't need to be 
specifically a, a magician in that instance. But then in sport, uh, and it, it applies to cycling as well, but if you want in sport, there are a number of, and again, this is another area again, um, if you want like all the uh, faking an action, you know, when you're, and cycling maybe um, it could apply more on, on track cycling, but when you pretend, you, you're, you know, pretend that you, you do an attack and you, you know, you change your posture on the bike, you, you look like more fatigued, for example, you, put, you, you act as you're putting more power, but in reality you're not. It's just to get them to to go, mm-hmm. to, to start the chase or something. Or you could do the opposite. You could be extremely, you know, composed and move like with a smile and looking fine, but pushing very hard with your legs. Mm-hmm. And like if you want some like misdirection, um, yeah. Misdirection is like, People generally often think that the magician acts or does his or her trick uh, when people are distracted, mm-hmm. but it's actually the opposite. The magician needs to ensure that your attention is 100% where I don't want it to be. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing something with my right hand, I need to make sure that you are actually looking at my left hand mm-hmm. uh, as an example. So like, it's not about distraction. It's about ensuring that actually I get 100% of your attention in the, wrong, in the wrong spot or the right spot for you. So there are, there are a lot of things that I appreciate about the magic world. Yeah, the, it's funny that you brought up the phone thing as, as a coach because one of the things I really harped on when we were talking about uh, testing and we had a testing episode was, I said, is if you are ever lucky enough to be in a situation where you are in a lab and you get to test athletes for a living or part of your living, do not be on your phone. It's just the root, it's the it sends the worst message to, to athletes. Yes, yeah. And it's getting harder to do nowadays because it's just everything's on the phone, the timers and all that kind of stuff. And and I say, well, just get a stopwatch, get whatever you need, buy whatever you need so you do not have to be on your phone because that attention needs to be there with the athlete. And yeah, it gets back to what are you conveying to the athlete when you were in that test with them? I agree. Uh, you want to convey that they're important, right? No, I agree. I just want to say that I, I came into this, uh, Paolo, understanding there's the science side of everything you had, but I was like, okay, but there is obviously the other side of that. You know, there's human interactions, there's how to process information and things. I think you've answered that for me. Like, yes, the science is important, but then there's this whole other side of you related to these sort of soft skills and survival and hard work and all these things that have kind of driven you and got you to where you are. So that's been a really clear, clear view for me. So, um, yeah, I'm enjoying just listening. Yeah. Thank you. No, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Like, I mean, in my career, I also think that there's a lot of luck, mm. like you need to be at the right moment in the right, you know, luck is clearly a component of being able to progress and so like i i have to acknowledge that but yes yeah, certainly i like i'm not where i am because i'm the best scientist or because i i read better paper than other people and at the same time i'm also not you know i'm not the master magician of communication uh but i i, I yeah i do try to listen and and uh um, and like, yeah i do ask for feedback and uh, and i i feel like on that i'm actually getting better uh as in the older I get, the more I ask for feedback and I'm keen to actually to, to know how to improve. Two days ago, I asked for feedback and they told me that I speak too, like it was this short presentation. They told me like I was talking too quickly and tonight I try to be a bit slower. <laughs> I don't know if it worked or not, but you, you never stop learning. I mean, uh, I know and I do know that with my accent, sometimes it's difficult to understand me, but like I, I, actually on that as a, a practic- classic example from a magic book, 
they will tell you that you need to talk and it might make you laugh but a magic book will tell you that you need to talk as if your grandmother was at the end of the room mm-hmm. so you need to talk you know loud and slowly your grandmother need to be able to understand you simple things but like like you don't read those things in a in a, in a sports science book or in a paper mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh, but i think it's actually quite valuable well that's the stuff that takes longer to actually develop and understand and learn in some ways mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, and it, where it's tricky is that actually also I don't know where to, where you learn it because uh, it's not that spending time in the environment you actually get better by itself because there and I don't know for sure but there is a risk that if you talk too quickly or the people don't understand you if you look at your phone uh, when athletes are around if you are late as Jason mentioned earlier <laughs> well your, your career is just not, not going to be long you're just not going to sign the next contract and so or like you, yeah, you might not gonna progress. So it's it's actually it's not enough to be around uh, to to get better. I don't, I don't know what the solution is. Um, yeah, p- potentially just observing, you know, successful people. You see the one that they're actually they can manage to to be in in, the, in in good position. You're trying to mimic like, and I, I think I've learned a lot from my supervisors. For example, my PhD supervisor, like I had three of them, and they were like extremely polite and, and optimistic and, uh, you know, available to listen. And, and That would be Dave, Chris Abyss, and who was your third? And Franco Impelli. Okay. So Dave Martin, Chris Abyss, and Franco Impellizzeri were my three PhD supervisors. I don't know Franco, but I know, obviously I know Chris. Um, yeah. And I've met Dave yeah. once or twice, and I've obviously listened to a few podcasts, interviews with him, and, you know, Chris and Dave are just the nicest guys they're just so pleasant to yeah talk to. just like seriously next next level they i i i think actually they changed my life they, they, as in they also changed the way i i am uh, as in i don't want to say I'm, I'm i'm copying them but i'm trying to sometimes i do stop and reflect and think like far out if i could be as good as them as nice as them as optimistic as them and they're like yeah uh so again i don't know where where you learn but how about someone like um Aldo Sassi. Yeah. Did you work directly with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did for a number of years, yes. So you're talking about people that have influenced you. I wonder if he's influenced you in some way. Well, certainly, yes. Yeah. Uh, as in... And who is Aldo Sassi? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Aldo was the director of, or general manager of the MAPE lab. Mm-hmm. So he influenced my life by hiring me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was the coach of, you know, probably the most famous being Kadel Evans. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, he kind of believed in me and he gave me a chance to work with those, you know, top-level cyclists. Probably, yeah, Kyle Evans was like the first Australian cyclist I've ever met. Like, where do you go from there? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. the chances? And eventually, I mean, the situation that he created, like creating the Mapei Lab and, and, and getting the Australian cycling team to come there is what created the condition for me to meet Australian researcher and eventually to send a CV to Australia. So, yeah, certainly that like a a big influence on, on, on my life, yeah. So one of the big parts of your role in, in terms of the, the solutions guy, right, you're kind of famously noted as the guy who suggested to Caleb Ewan to try aerodynamic testing for his sprint position. I mean, I've seen pictures of this and and he's really developed that position and, you know, you're probably one of the first people that have gotten him down that path. Are there other kind of out of the box 
uh, solutions and suggestions that you've made through your career that that you're proud of or you think made a big difference or just ones that were unique that that worked maybe even even to your surprise um do you have a couple kind of cool stories or anecdotes around that in your career um that's a good question it's tough to follow up on that and as in like probably the, yeah that one is a relatively big one that a big practical impact um I mentioned this one, I don't know if it's big or not, but I was quite, probably like it may be small, but I was quite proud of the solution in my role with Australian cycling team in the lead up to the Olympic Games. And I think I can say it anyway, there was this attempt to make skins fit fit better on on people. I don't think it's a secret, trying to get them, you know, to fit uh, again appropriately. And there were a number of Probably even before I started, they've been looking for a number of solutions, and and it's not easy to find the right person to that with the right skill set. Because, just because it's a comp- it's a complex matter, and eventually, again, possibly for my interest in, in the performing arts, I actually contacted a couple of theaters, thinking like surely there is like some someone working in ballet or, or some sort of again mm-hmm. in costumes where, whose job is to work with very unique fabrics and in, in, in a way that they need to look very good and need to be also practical and, you know, the extreme position, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, yeah. So I, I contacted a number of theaters and, and universities working in in, uh, in art and eventually found this uh, seamstress. And as a coincidence, she was actually also like a, a former Olympian. So she, she kind of was the perfect fit. She understood sport and she had the skill set and the, and, the, and the devices and the tool and, and I was quite proud because, I don't know, from a very simple intuition and kind of connected with my passion for the performing arts, kind of helped or contributed to the performances in the Olympic Games. I don't know, it's just a little example. I think this is my last question for you. I don't know if the other guys will have anything. But one of the things that we always talk about is measures of training load and this kind of black box that <laughs> is around that. And we always laugh at it. Yeah, I know. We um, have to talk about magic. um but for me if we could magically come up with a speaking of magic if we could magically come up with a a a very valid and good measure of training load i think it would be just um groundbreaking for the sport of cycling i mean we have tss right now but that has limits we have trims and that has limits we have Sessional RPE and all of these other things. Each one of them has a limit. So I don't know if I really want to ask you a question about training load, but that for me would be a, a, a good example of coming up with a really good measure of training load and a really awesome way to model it would probably really help cycling, in my opinion. Do you have areas of research or metrics or anything like that that you look at and you're like, man, if we could nail this, it would change sports science or the cycling performance world? There are no easy questions today, Paolo. <laughs> no, well, um, I, guess, I, guess, I guess, and I'm not, I'm not able to, or to, I'm, I'm not addressing your question, but I guess my thinking often goes to the, the other way from the marginal gains. So you've got the marginal gains here and I'm looking at the, at the big gains. Uh, which possibly, you know, your, your training, uh, training load is just measuring it. But anyway, training is clearly one of the potentially not, not marginal gains. 
But I guess my answer or my comment would be if you could actually nail or yeah, understand how to optimize training and improve adaptations, mm-hmm. like that, that would be probably like somewhere of trying to look into. Yeah, it's very similar, I think, and understanding like very, very well to the point where you'd be like, well, if we go out and you do two eight-hour rides, it's going to boost up these adaptations. It's going to relate to power this much. If you do these amount of high-intensity interval training sessions and this type of session here, it's going to have this outcome. Um, I think right now um, we probably don't have as much of a grasp on that as we think we do, but it's a lot of... If I can interrupt you, like I I feel like, sorry... Just we, we're getting older. I feel I'm, I'm in that phase of my career where I feel like I'm realizing more and more that I actually don't know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. In, even with yes, even with training, you know, sure. they, they, there are actually publications, but it's not just publication. But there are publications showing that you know, with very different training approaches, people have been equally successful. Mm-hmm. And and there are arguments for you know, you, you repeat the exact training plan, which. People would argue that it's not even if you do the exact same whatever you, you name it kilometers or power two years in a row, it's not the same because you have changed. You are yeah. one year older, you are one year more trained. So like it's never the same. But anyway, even if you do the same thing, maybe one year you get an injury in there that you haven't had before. So like it's re- it's really I, I, I don't I, I think I, I like the idea of trying to model it, but in the model you, you just need probably an equal number of mental psychobiological and component of like life stress and all these things that really becomes really hard to capture and mm-hmm. i give you like this is a very basic simple example and you know that it would have happened to anyone so it's not don't expect anything very smart but classic example of you know you, you have your model with your training load and you expect that after a recovery day or a rest day they, they recover, they're fresh, they can perform, and, and then they don't. And then you have a chart. Because sometimes, you know, I think a chart is actually more important than looking at the screen of the computer and the number. And you find out that in a recovery day, actually, they went real estate shopping with the, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, and they've been walking for, you know, 15 kilometers, which is really uh, fatiguing and stressful. And, and maybe there are university exams, and guess who knows? So, like... Yeah, like the, that model is uh, he, whatever you do. If you only capture what happens in your training method modality, I, I struggle to think it's going to be. I don't want to say perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even I, I might even question: Is it going to be any good? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if this is. You, how, you yeah. need an athlete or a person that has a very steady life in order to get. Yeah, that and, and I don't know if this is. A lot is, of times, just an it's just an amateur or a pro that has. Has really has their shit together. You know what? Like as a, as a young sports scientist, you know, you, you chat with a coach and, and, a, and an old co- and a coach will tell you, you know, you know I, I look my athletes in the eyes and you think like, oh, this is like BS and you go like your BS detector. But then as you get older, maybe it's not just looking in the eyes, but there are a number of things like the way they walk into the, you know, the, to the session or they walk, you know, a bit brilliant. Are they, I, I give you this, this is actually uh, what I think I thought was a nugget. Uh, and this is straight from the fastest man on the planet, like the Italian, I uh, can't even remember his name now, shame on me. Uh, but the, the guy who won the, oh my God, Jacob, maybe. That's okay. I couldn't remember. The, the guy. I couldn't remember Cavendish's name last week. 
So they done, I, I'll take three minutes to give you this story, but I, I found it very interesting. So the guy won the, um, the you know, 100 meter sprint at the Tokyo Olympics. So he's an Italian and just completely random luck uh, for me. I, I know the what's the equivalent of the performance director, the technical director of the Italian Track and Field Federation. Uh, just because he was, together with Aldo Sassi, which we mentioned five minutes ago, one of my professors in Milan at the university. And then we kind of stayed in touch. He actually came to Canberra once. We caught up with the AIS. Super nice guy. Anyway, in his career now, he ended up being the, the well, in the highest role at the, in the Italian track and field. So you can argue that he's the master master magician behind the success of you know the Italian the Italian team we actually won I think they won five gold in Tokyo after having won anything since probably 64 68 anyway like a, a person that I would respect as a like someone actually as a what he says is probably going to be interesting anyway um, he said he doesn't have Facebook he doesn't have anything but his wife told him get an Instagram account I don't even know why. That was the suggestion and why he mentioned it. But anyway, what he, he, he shared very recently, I called him like after the games and we had a bit of a chat. And he said that he learns more about the brain or the, the, the status of their, their athletes uh, from Instagram than from looking at training data. And he was referring to all that non-spoken things. Are they happy? Are they broken up with their girlfriend? Are they going out like, like late at late dinners and um, yeah, which again, this is just an anecdote, but I thought it was very in- interesting. Like as a coach, yeah. again, here we are talking about what's the metrics, what's the paper, mm-hmm. what's this, mm-hmm. what's that, and this guy actually tells me that you know the, the most important thing, not exactly, but like a key a key element is actually just spying <laughs> the Instagram's account of, of his athletes just to understand. But it could be that it goes down to connecting because then when he rocks up to the training session, he goes like, oh, you know, he knows what to say, what to talk, talk about this kind of music or that tattoo. He just, he just connect. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, that's a step above your Strava creeping, Damien. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I was going to say that um, having athletes that do interviews as well, and if they're quite candid and open with their interviews, a lot of the time I don't even raise this thing with them when I'm talking to them because I already learned what they're thinking and sort of make my decisions based on that and just go from there. Yeah. It's kind of helpful. Mm-hmm. But eventually all athletes become really bad at interviews, so then you get nothing from <laughs> them anyway. So. so, Paolo, do you still have that contact with the athletes to get that that kind of relationship with them and learn from in that way? Or is that now the people that work under you that are having yeah. that contact? Yeah. In my role now, I don't, yeah, I don't have um, enough contact with athletes. We, um, th- th- there are some specific initiatives where I, I engage athletes. I and the team, we engage athletes because we want to hear from them, but that's, it would be like a very, spe- very specific. So like it's not on a day, day to day, Mm-hmm. Uh, exercise. If, as an example, we are now working on setting the, the research priorities for the next 10 years. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, when I say I, is because there is a fair bit of evidence that, especially from the, you know, uh, medicine uh, space area publications that you, you are meant to engage and listen to your page to patients or customers, which for our other coaches and athletes. Uh, so in setting research priorities, um, I, I've been pushing hard and making sure that we do ask the questions to athletes and coaches 
Um, yeah, that should be a bottom recent, up, right? That should be a bottom up decision as opposed to yeah, a top yeah, down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, the classic, the classic argument, and again, it's not even in sport, so it's, it's not what I've seen or I'm not criticizing the sport environment, is that if you ask researchers, they might come up with what's their passion or their lab. Clearly, if you have a lab which is specialized in that and you ask what should we research on, you end up with that, that area because it's their yeah. uh, specialty. Uh, so, yeah, as Jason said, we try to go in bottom-up and ask the questions to athletes. So, yeah, I, I, that, that's probably the closest I get to athletes right now. Yeah. And do you think in the future you'll go back to working with athletes more or you haven't thought about it yet? Do, is it something you want to – do you miss working with athletes and want to get back to that or are you happy in, in these kind of administration roles now? Um, I guess what I'm actually happy is to learn new things and this is still new and I feel like I'm learning every day and like there's so many components of yeah the, the new job and, I may, and I've only been here actually like for three months. So I guess – to try to have an impact. I, I guess in such a position, you would hope to you know, finish this contract and maybe the next one. I guess like, I, I hope like you, you need a, a number of years to have an impact. You know, research takes a year. By the time you, mm-hmm. you set a strategy and then, you know, you start to promote this research and then the research actually gets done, you might, we might be five, six years down, down the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I'm hoping to stay here for uh, as long as it takes to, to, to have some positive impact. Yeah, um, and then I can retire and then volunteer with athletes. Yeah, yeah, and um, actually, that's kind of interesting because the we're going to have Chris come on, um, hopefully in December or something like that. And then the topic that we've picked out with him is you know this interaction between academia and high performance cycling, and how they can work with each other. Which you know you're a great example of that, right? Like you were put into that realm of you had the postdoc and then your PhD with ECU and then you were put in that into that industry uh, of the of high performance cycling basically um, and so this kind of seems like a very similar thing here that you're talking about is you know developing the um, the research and encouraging the research that's actually going to be a practical use and that probably, and that's not going to happen without having a good communication. In this case, between the scientists and and with the athletes and the coaches, and that would be similar to what I'm hoping to discuss with Chris. It would be that interaction between the academics, which would be the researchers, and then the sports teams, which would be like uh, you know, Green Edge, for example. I mean, Chris is probably one like you know the perfect example of someone who actually works kind of on the right themes and it does engage with the sport and so like is actually, yeah, I think is, uh, and there are so many, many people in academia doing the right things. Uh, so like it wasn't just a critic, but a critic. Um, but no, yeah, be keen to, to listen to Chris's episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, did you have any questions for us? Well, well you're based in different places and you're not in Australia. I'm in Ireland yeah. currently. Yeah. This is the first time I've been on, on with someone that isn't Australian. So thanks for kind of adding to the balance there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. No, you guys look like a good, a good, a good, a good team combination of. Yeah. Well, I'm going to end this one. Yeah. Uh, so Paolo, it has been great having you um, on on the podcast. 
good catching up. Haven't talked to you in a, in a while. No, thanks for thanks for having me. I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, hopefully have you back on again. And you know, really interested to see how this new role goes for you at the AIS. As I've said a million times before, it's always been really awesome, kind of watching you move along your career path. Thank you. Um, yeah, and all the all the best. Thank you to Paolo for coming on and thank you to my co-hosts. You can find out when we release episodes by following our Twitter or Instagram accounts. On Twitter, we're at Cycling Club Pod and on Instagram, we're at Cycling Performance Club. 